Lord Jesus, thank you so much for providing us with all the evidence that we need to believe in your physical resurrection from the dead. And Lord, I pray as we make our way through the study today that you would help us to see that uh, we, we stand on a faith that is based on the facts. Uh, Lord, and we thank you. We thank you for drawing us to, to yourself, Lord. We thank you for revealing uh, uh, to us uh, the truth of these things. And, and Lord, I thank you so much for how you're going to work in the hearts of both believers and unbelievers this morning for our benefit and for your glory. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Easter, it's the day we set aside to celebrate the resurrection of our Redeemer, Jesus. And while those who believe in this supernatural story are completely convinced in the historicity of this Easter event, the world is also still filled with many unbelievers who see no reason to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, it's my guess that we all know someone who is currently rejecting the resurrection of Jesus simply because they think that the Easter story is based on nothing more than a fantastical faith that's free from all evidence. And it's for this reason that I want to spend our time today considering some of the reasons for why rational people will believe in the reality of Christ's resurrection. Now with this as the focus, we're going to spend our time today considering the testimonies of those who were able to you know, put their faith to the test. There were those who were there at the time of our Savior's resurrection. They were able to put their faith to the test by examining the evidence. And as we examine the testimonies of these people, now I realize that there might be some here this morning who are skeptical of my source uh, information. Maybe you're skeptical of my source materials because you don't really believe that the Bible is the word of God. Listen, the average unbeliever in the world today is quick to argue that the Bible is an untrustworthy source. And the reason why is because they've been led to believe that the Bible has been altered and changed over time. And they typically make the argument like, well, the Bible's been changed so many times, or the Bible's been translated so many times that we can never really believe what it says anymore. And yet whenever I ask the skeptic who doesn't really believe in the Bible, whenever I ask them to show me the empirical evidence of altered manuscripts, I have yet to find one person say, here they are. Here are the manuscripts that used to say this. Now it says that. Clearly this is a change. Nope. I've never seen any skeptic say, here are the manuscripts that have been changed. I ask them to show me the empirical evidence of altered manuscripts, and they quickly reveal that their skepticism of the Bible is based on blind faith. They just believe that it's been changed, despite the facts. The reason why I say that this is a faith, you know, and there is no empirical evidence which actually reveals that the Bible has been altered the, the actual evidence actually reveals that the Bible that I'm teaching from today is 99.5% accurate to the earliest manuscripts. You might not know this, but we actually have tens of thousands of manuscripts from the New Testament in part or in whole, each of which date uh, from at least the late first century all the way to the 15th century when the printing press was finally invented. Not only that, but 18 of these New Testament, Testament manuscripts they're actually from the second century, uh, and we have one that's from the first century. And listen, more than 43% of all New Testament verses are found in those 18 manuscripts alone. Almost half of the New Testament can be found in those 18 manuscripts that are found in the second century and one, like I said, from the late first century. And if you already have copies in the second century, where did the originals come from? Prior to the second century. And so the original autographs must be found in the first century. Furthermore, I should also point out that a large portion of the New Testament can be reproduced just from the quotations written in the books of our ancient church fathers. As a matter of fact, uh, the Apostle John, he had a student, his name was Ignatius of Antioch. And in the letters of Ignatius, we find quotes from the Gospels of Matthew, Luke, John, Acts, James, 1 Peter, and most of the letters of Paul. Now, what in the world was he quoting if the, if the Bible is in a first century work? 
Clearly, Ignatius of Antioch was quoting source material from the first century. Then there was Clement of Rome, who was quite possibly the same Clement mentioned in the book of Philippians. He not only quoted from Romans and Corinthians, but he also quoted from Acts, Titus, Hebrews, James, as well as First and Second Peter. Listen, it would be easy for us to spend the rest of our time today examining just the writings of the early church fathers, to look at all of their quotations that come from the Bible. But let it suffice to say that there are more than 36,000 New Testament quotations found in the writings of our early church fathers, and that is huge. Based on all of the early manuscripts and all the quotes from the early church fathers, well, it's no wonder why so many scholars, even skeptical scholars, have drawn the conclusion that our modern New Testament is 99.5% accurate to the original autographs which were written in the first century. And with that being the case, listen, we can use the Bible as accurate source information to investigate the claims of Christ's resurrection. Well, with this as the goal... I want to spend the rest of our time this morning examining the testimonies of three different men who each set out to discover if Jesus truly had risen up from the grave. And throughout the next 30 or so minutes, we're going to consider, first of all, the testimony of a Gentile physician named Luke. We're also going to consider the testimony of a skeptical apostle named Thomas. Thirdly and finally, we'll consider the testimony of a former Pharisee named Paul. Well, with this as the outline, let's begin to consider the research of this Gentile physician named Luke. If you would look with me here at Acts chapter 1, I want to draw your attention to verse 3, because here Luke tells us that Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And here in these verses, we find this disciple named Luke. He's summing up the Easter story by assuring his audience that there was strong evidence which would lead us us to believe that Jesus physically rose up from the grave after suffering the excruciating death of the cross. Now I should point out that Luke used the same Greek word that uh, Matthew used when Matthew described the suffering of Jesus Christ. When Luke talks about Jesus presenting himself alive after his suffering. He used the same Greek word that Matthew used in Matthew 16, 21. Uh, It's there where Matthew tells us that Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. In light of this, it should be clear to us that when Luke mentions the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's actually talking about the sufferings uh, that actually claim the, the life of, of the Lord. He's talking about the sufferings that resulted in the death of Jesus Christ. And listen, not only was Luke referring to the sufferings of Jesus' death that occurred there upon the cross, but he also assures us that Jesus did in fact present himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. Now, if you're skeptical about Luke's testimony, It'll help you to know that that Luke actually became a disciple of Christ only after the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Savior Jesus. Luke became a believer after examining the eyewitness accounts. Uh, And it's important to understand that Luke wasn't some backwoods yokel who was easily duped by slick-talking evangelist. Now, Luke was actually a physician who took the time to go and interview all of the eyewitnesses in order to present an accurate uh, recording of what he discovered in his investigation. As a matter of fact, uh, let's consider how he put it here in the beginning of his gospel account. It's here in Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, where Luke tells us this. He says, "...inasmuch as many have taken in hand..." to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed." Now, here in the opening verses of Luke's gospel account, 
We find Luke, he's writing to a man named Theophilus. And seeing how Luke was a physician, well, it's possible that Luke was the personal physician of this man. And, but no matter the case, what we do know here is that Luke, he, he was a well-studied man, and he set out to investigate the truth claims of the gospel message. He came along after the resurrection of Jesus Christ with the goal of interviewing all of the eyewitnesses to find out if these things were true. And so he interviewed and cross-examined those who claimed to have seen Jesus after his death. And listen, not only was Luke a well-studied man who took the time to investigate and cross-examine all of the eyewitnesses, but he ended up becoming one of the greatest historians this world has ever seen. As a matter of fact, uh, you, know, the, you know, he's been put to the test by several skeptical scholars, and, and there's one author, uh, one researcher who tells us that Luke has been judged by a large number of historians and biblical scholars to be a first-rate ancient historian. One of these skeptical scholars assures us that the historical trustworthiness of Luke has indeed been acknowledged by many biblical critics whose standpoint has been uh, to, uh, definitely liberal, So in other words, liberal scholars came along trying to debunk Luke and found out that they couldn't. Uh, The same person goes on to tell us this. It is a conclusion of high importance for those who consider the New Testament from the angle of the historian. Uh, And so we see that that Luke's record here, Luke's account is accurate history. Archaeology always supports what Luke said we'll find in the ground. Not only that, but there's a guy named Sir William Ramsay. He was one of the greatest archaeologists of the 19th and early 20th century. He actually spent 15 years attempting to undermine Luke's credentials as a historian. He set out to refute the reliability of the New Testament by showing that Luke got it all wrong. Well, he finally concluded this, and I quote him, Luke is a historian of the first rank. This author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. Incredible. After spending 15 years examining the history written by Luke, Sir William Ramsay, one of the greatest archaeologists of the 19th and 20th centuries, had to conclude that Luke got his history correct. Clearly, Luke was a credible researcher who not only knew how to interview eyewitnesses, but he was also able to record his findings in a way that would stand the test of time and the scrutiny of the toughest skeptics. Therefore, when Luke tells us here that Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, we can take him at his word. We can take him at his word because he was a man who was only trying to understand and grasp the truth of what happened there at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. And when Luke tells us that he was seen by the disciples for 40 days, well, that's very important. You see, the disciples of Christ didn't just see Jesus once after his resurrection. You know, it's not uncommon for, for someone after they lose a loved one to maybe think they see them through a crowded, you know, mall or something. Is, was, is that, it looked like... Yeah, that, that's, that's possible. It happens. You know, I, I, think, uh, I think, you know, those people who miss Elvis, you know, that's why they constantly see him. Or Tupac or whatever. But it's not just some sighting in the mall through a crowded group of people. No, no. Jesus spent one day, two days, three days, four days, 20 days, 30 days, 40 days. Just about a month and a half with his disciples, presenting himself alive from the dead with many infallible proofs. And so we see that after interviewing all of these eyewitnesses, Luke writes his gospel account and then writes the the following book of Acts to to show all the things that, that prove the resurrection and ascension of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. At the same time, I'm not suggesting that we only take Luke's word for it. 
No, instead, I think we should also examine the testimony of a skeptical apostle named Thomas. And with this as the focus, I want to draw your attention to the Gospel of John. It's here in John chapter 20, beginning at verse 24, where John tells us that Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Here in these verses, John informs us that one of the apostles named Thomas, he was skeptical about the claims of Jesus' resurrection. And and I can appreciate this because, listen, people don't normally recover from a stab wound to the heart. You know, that's not something that you're just going to bounce back from. Please understand, Jesus wasn't just crucified. He was stabbed in the heart with a Roman spear. And listen, it only takes one minute to bleed out from that point. You're you're not going to resuscitate from this wound. Knowing that Jesus had bled out there on the cross, well, Thomas was like, yeah, I can't believe this. I can't believe that he's just going to bounce back from this wound. And so Thomas was skeptical. Thomas even referred to the spear wound when he presented the, the reasons for why he wasn't willing to believe unless he could examine the evidence. Notice again, it's there in verse 25 where Thomas again declares, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. He wanted to put his hand into the spear wound of Jesus Christ before believing. He expected that if this is truly the risen Lord, that a spear wound in his side would satisfy him. Simply put, listen, the physical evidence is all that Thomas was about to accept before believing in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. And who can blame him? As we consider the skepticism of Thomas, it's unfortunate that he soon became known as Doubting Thomas. Many pastors referred to him as Doubting Thomas. And and I think that's unfortunate because, listen, Thomas, I think, you know, I applaud him for his skepticism. I don't think that he was guilty of doubting the resurrection. I think that he was a man who was a skeptic and wanted to examine the evidence before signing off on his belief. He was reserving judgment until he could examine the empirical evidence. And much like a CSI investigator, I believe that Thomas wanted to examine the evidence before drawing this conclusion. And thankfully for him, the Lord Jesus did not fault him for his skepticism. Jesus was ready to show up and show him the body of proof. As a matter of fact, let's pick up our study of John chapter 20, beginning at verse 26. Here John writes, after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Here in these verses, John tells us about this moment when the resurrected Redeemer entered into the room where the disciples were hanging out. And Jesus, he addressed his disciples by inviting Thomas to come and examine the wounds of his suffering. Now, how incredible is that? Jesus was ready and willing to provide a skeptic like Thomas with the evidence that he needed to trust in the resurrection. And, you know, we don't have the physical body of Jesus Christ here on the planet today so that we can also engage in the same examination. But what we can do is consider the testimony of an apostle who was so skeptical that he wasn't willing to believe unless he he took the time to examine the evidence for himself. And now we've been provided with this testimony of a true skeptic who ended up becoming a believer after forensically testing the evidence of Christ's resurrection. Now again, it's interesting to note that it's in Acts chapter 1 where Luke tells us that Thomas was gathered together with the rest of the the disciples on the day when Jesus ascended into heaven. That's right. 
Thomas was there with the rest of them as they watched Jesus ascending into heaven. And what this tells us is that Thomas was so convinced by the evidence that, that, that Jesus had died and had risen from the grave that he became an apostle who continued serving the Lord after his ascension into heaven. Think about it. Why else would he continue to dedicate his life to the Christian faith unless he had been convinced by the evidence? And listen, not only was Thomas there with the rest of the disciples on the day of the Lord's ascension into heaven, but according to tradition, Thomas also served the Lord by taking the gospel message to India, and probably because Indian food is so delicious. But also, he probably wanted to reach the people there in India with the gospel message. Now, there are a few traditional stories about the death of the apostle Thomas, and I'm not here to weigh in on which, which of those I think are true. But there are good reasons for us to believe that this one-time skeptic ended up becoming a martyr for our Messiah, Jesus Christ. And there's no doubt in my mind that this incredible commitment to Christ, well, it's further evidence that he truly believed the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That being the case, it's my opinion that the forensic test of the Apostle Thomas, it gives us good reason to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ not only died upon a Roman cross, but that he also rose from the grave on the third day, just as he promised he would. And while it's true that the Lord Jesus decided to honor Thomas' request to personally test the evidence, he also told Thomas that those who have not seen the evidence and yet have also believed will be blessed. If you've placed your faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ without seeing the evidence, you are blessed. And yet I can also tell you that there is good evidence to place our faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The reason why is because the reality of the resurrection has been confirmed by the testimony of a Gentile physician named Luke, and the reality of the resurrection has been confirmed by the testimony of a skeptical apostle named Thomas. Thirdly and finally, we should consider how the reality of the resurrection was confirmed by the testimony of a former Pharisee named Paul. Uh, And and with that, I want to point out here that Paul was actually a self-righteous Pharisee uh, who was dedicated to the destruction of the church. The reason why is because he saw the first century church as a cult that must be stopped. Yeah, he believed that, that the Christian church there in the first century was nothing more than a cult group that was following a, a false messiah. And he was determined to put it to an end because he thought this was a disruption of the Jewish faith. And yet this man who went out persecuting Christians eventually became a believer after finding himself in the presence of our risen Redeemer. How do you account for his conversion apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ? With that, I want to consider his testimony, which is found here in 1 Corinthians 15. It's here where Paul assures his audience about those who had witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you would look with me here at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I want to draw your attention to verse 1. Here Paul writes, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time, For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's presenting the Christians there in Corinth with a list of those who saw Jesus alive after he died upon the cross 
And, and in, here in this list, you know, Paul not only mentions the 12 apostles, he also tells us there in verse 6 that Jesus was then seen by over 500 brethren at once. And that, that's pretty interesting because during the days of Jesus' earthly ministry, he had a few hundred disciples. But here we see he, there was 500 disciples. I'm guessing that many of these became believers after witnessing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And according to Paul, many of those disciples were still living at the point in time when he wrote this letter. And so the recipients of this epistle were still able to go and interview the majority of those eyewitnesses that Paul had referred to. What this also means then is that there was no doubt in Paul's mind that any person who was willing to take an honest look at the evidence would also then come to the conclusion that Jesus had, in fact, risen from the grave. He was actually telling people right there in the first century, test it. Come talk to these people who, who saw it. He was presenting them not, not with a, a faith that couldn't be falsified, but he was encouraging them to come and examine the evidence based on eyewitness testimony. Sadly, there were still many unbelievers there in the first century who were continuing to reject the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the reason why is due to the fact that they had already decided that there was no such thing as a resurrection from the dead. This belief system kind of found itself in the, in the group of religious leaders there in Israel known as the Sadducees. They didn't believe in a resurrection from the dead. And, and clearly this belief system had worked itself into the church and they were starting to become Christians who were no longer believing in the resurrection. And that's what Paul is addressing here in 1 Corinthians 15. As a matter of fact, look with me here at verse 12. Here Paul declares, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. Here in these verses, we find Paul presenting a, a hypothesis by reminding his audience about the fact that there was this group of eyewitnesses, it was greater than 500 people strong, who were all preaching the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. And since these people were certain that Jesus had in fact risen from the grave and that they had seen the evidence of this, well, there's really only two options here for, uh, for those who were denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those who are denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's two options for them. Either, first of all, that there is no such thing as the resurrection from the dead. Either that's incorrect, because Jesus' resurrection would be proof that there is a resurrection from the dead. Or the other option is Paul and all the rest of the eyewitnesses were just lying. So either there is no resurrection from the dead, and, and, and they're lying about it, or Jesus did rise from the grave... And those who reject the resurrection are wrong from Jump Street. Well, after presenting his audience with these two options, Paul went on to explain that Christianity would be ridiculous if they were in fact lying about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If all these eyewitnesses were just lying about what they saw, and yet they were being persecuted, many had been martyred already for their faith in Jesus, why? Why would anybody do this if it wasn't true? If they knew it was a lie, why would they die for this? Why would they suffer for this? Why would they be persecuted for something that they knew was a lie? With all this in mind, let's pick up our study of 1 Corinthians 15 here, beginning at verse 16. Here Paul declares, For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not written, uh, risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Paul here is helping the Christians there in Corinth to understand that if Jesus hasn't really risen up from the grave, then they, uh, you know, the eyewitnesses are, are, are really nothing more than a bunch of deceivers, first of all. But furthermore, those who choose to become Christians would be pitied more than anybody else because Christians were being persecuted there in the first century for their faith in Jesus Christ. So why would you put your faith in a risen Lord who hasn't risen only to be punished for something that you say is true but you know you're lying about? None of that makes any sense. If the dead don't rise, 
than Christians who trust in the resurrection of Jesus Christ have embraced the greatest deception ever created. If Jesus Christ is not risen from the grave, we are all here wasting our time. There is no point in being here. Thankfully, the historical evidence is on our side. And Paul insisted that they should believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ because we know that Jesus has risen from the grave. Look with me here at 1 Corinthians 15. It's verse 20 where Paul says this. He says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Here in these verses, Paul assured his audience that Christ has, in fact, risen from the dead. That being the case, he went on to present them with a hypothesis which is based upon the fact of the resurrection. It's there in verse 20 where he says, Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, Paul was essentially telling his audience that not only has Jesus risen up from the grave, But his resurrection goes on to prove that everyone else will also rise from the grave. Because Jesus has risen from the grave, we can be certain that everyone else will also rise from the grave. And while it's true that Adam's sin has resulted in death for every person, it's also true that Jesus is the one who provides us with the promise of resurrection. In order to put Paul's hypothesis in simpler terms, think about it like this. If Jesus truly rose up from the grave, then it's also extremely probable that we too will eventually rise up from our grave. And according to Jesus, our eventual resurrection will be followed by the judgment. That's right, according to Jesus, every person in the afterlife will be divided into two separate groups. The first group Well, this is made up of those who rejected the forgiveness that Jesus purchased there on the cross. And according to Jesus, it's the unbelievers who will go away into everlasting punishment. And so while everyone will experience the resurrection, some will experience the resurrection to eternal condemnation. The second group is made up of those who place their faith in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And according to the Lord, those who place their faith in him will resurrect unto eternal life. Now, can I scientifically prove this? Can I scientifically prove the resurrection of Jesus Christ? No more than I could scientifically prove George Washington crossed the Delaware. You you see, a a study of history falls outside of the realm of scientific, scientific observation. Scientific observation is based on, you know, repeatability and, and, and these sorts of things. We have to be able to observe it over and over again. Well, you can't do that with history. So those who say, well, I'm not going to believe in Jesus because, you know, the science doesn't support it. Well, listen, the science can't prove what I ate for breakfast a year ago. But I guarantee you I ate breakfast. It's the most important meal of the day. But I can't scientifically prove to you that I ate breakfast a year ago. This isn't a science question. Can I scientifically prove that we will eventually rise up from the grave? No. And I also can't scientifically prove to you that we will not rise up from the grave. The person who says, well, you know, science doesn't prove the the resurrection. Well, well, science doesn't prove a non-resurrection either. What we need is somebody who has died been dead, and then come back and said, hey, I found out what happens, here it is. That's what we need. A credible source who knows what happens on both sides of this veil of death. Well, guess what? We have this person. We have this professor. We have this authority of what happens after the grave. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lived, he was crucified, he died on the cross, he bled out for our sins, he was placed in the tomb and rose on the third day and spent time 40 days with his disciples 
showing many infallible proofs that he had come back from the dead. I suggest to you that he is the only authority on what happens in the afterlife, and therefore we ought to take his word for it. And Jesus supports Paul's hypothesis about the resurrection of the dead because he is the professor with experiential knowledge about the afterlife. Now, as we consider all the evidence that we've examined this morning, I want to remind you that we've considered the testimony of a physician named Luke who assured us that Jesus presented himself for 40 days after he was crucified. And during that time, Jesus proved that he was risen with many infallible proofs. And so we have the word of this Gentile physician who became a believer himself after interviewing and cross-examining all of the eyewitnesses. Secondly, we've examined the testimony of a skeptic named Thomas, and we learned that his examination of the facts not only satisfied his own skepticism, but it convinced Thomas to go and become a Christian missionary who was not only willing to preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ in foreign lands, but he was willing to suffer and die for this message that he had examined for himself. Finally, we've considered the list of eyewitnesses presented by Paul. And remember, Paul himself was ready to shut down the entire Christian faith, calling it a cult, only to become a born-again believer after finding himself face-to-face with our risen Redeemer. And then he presents us with a list of eyewitnesses who saw Jesus after his death on the cross. And though Paul was a Pharisee who once dedicated himself to the destruction of the church, He became a born-again believer on the road to Damascus, convinced in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And according to his testimony, the person who wants to be rational, the person who wants to be reasonable, will embrace this evidence that the Lord truly has risen up from the grave and therefore has become the authority of what happens in the afterlife. With all this in mind, I'll sum up our Easter sermon in this way. The reality of the resurrection was confirmed by the testimony of a physician named Luke. The resurrection of our, uh, the reality of the resurrection is also confirmed by the testimony of a skeptic named Thomas. And the reality of the, re- of the resurrection was confirmed by the testimony of a former Pharisee named Paul. And listen, when it comes to the evidence that, that supports the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, I'm here to tell you, I've barely scratched the surface. I've barely scratched the surface of the overwhelming historical evidence which ought to fill our hearts with the faith that Jesus really did rise up from the tomb on that first Easter morning. As a matter of fact, there are several extra biblical sources from the first and second centuries, uh, each of which support our belief in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These include the writings of historians like Flavius Josephus, Clement of Rome, Cornelius Tacitus, Gaius Suetonius, Pliny the Younger, and the list can go on of the first and second century sources that are extra biblical, and yet they provide us with basically the same information to corroborate what we find in the New Testament. Not only that, but it's also important for us to remember that the first century saints became martyrs. They became martyrs who were willing to suffer and die for this message that our Messiah has in fact risen from the grave. And seeing how they had the ability to examine the evidence for themselves. The question is this, why would these guys go and die for something that they knew was a lie? Whether we're talking about the swoon theory where Jesus really didn't die, but he got resuscitated in the tomb, or or we're talking about the shallow grave theory where, you know, uh, the disciples hid the body of Jesus Christ and faked the resurrection so that they could maintain some sort of power or something. And, you know, there's all these sorts of explanations for that try to explain away the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The question is, if these guys knew Jesus really didn't rise up from the grave, if they really didn't see him for 40 days after the cross, why would they die? For this message. Maybe there was one or two of them that were psychopaths that were willing to go out and lie until they died, but all of them? Doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for these men to go and pre- present a message that they knew was a lie 
and, and then face certain death from their persecutors. Listen, if you're lying about something and you know it's a lie and someone comes up to you and says, stop lying or I'm going to kill you right now. Guess what you're going to start, stop doing at that very minute? It's, it's truth time, isn't it? Yeah, you're not going to die for a lie. Not for something that you know is a lie. And yet these men were willing to die for this message that they themselves examined for themselves. Based on this, the resurrection of our Redeemer is the best, most rational explanation for all the things that we've considered this morning. There's so much evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ that a 19th century historian and professor who worked at Oxford University, his name is Thomas Arnold, he described the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ in this way. And I quote him here. I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer. I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer. In light of this, I must insist that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not only probable, I would argue that it's provable with, with the best evidence of history that anybody uh, would ever have apart from a video camera. The question is, are you engage, willing to engage in a fair inquiry of the evidence? Please trust me when I tell you that the believer who places their faith in the risen Lord is actually being more reasonable than the unbeliever who is choosing to reject the biblical account of Jesus' resurrection. That being the case, you know, it's sad to say that the world is still filled with unbelievers who won't even take the time to consider the facts that support our faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The reason why? Well, at the end of the day, it's because they would rather suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. They would rather suppress the truth in their unrighteousness because if they agree that there is some risen redeemer, then they also have to agree that they're eventually going to give an account for their lives one day. And they don't want to stop sinning. They don't want to you know, start living for the Lord Jesus Christ. So they'd just rather suppress the truth in their unrighteousness by ignoring the facts. Simply put, they're saying, don't confuse me with the facts. I've already made up my mind. If this is true of you, I encourage you to realize that those who reject the resurrection of Jesus Christ will not avoid the judgment day. You can deny it, but you'll, you'll eventually stand there. Those who reject the resurrection of Jesus Christ are simultaneously rejecting the free gift of grace by which we're saved from the certain condemnation of the law. And knowing that every unrepentant unbeliever will eventually receive the punishment that we all deserve, I encourage every unbeliever to spend some time examining the evidence with fair inquiry. I encourage you to, re to, to examine the evidence regarding the reality of Jesus' resurrection because everyone who will uh, engage in a fair inquisition of the evidence will be led to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is risen indeed. The fact is most unbelievers who are rejecting the reality of the resurrection, they've spent zero time examining the evidence for themselves. They've come to a conclusion without actually examining the evidence. They don't really believe that there's a rational reason to trust in Jesus Christ, and yet, and yet I can assure you, that there is plenty of proof which supports my faith in the biblical account of Christ's resurrection. The reason I know this, well, it's because I didn't become a believer until I examined the evidence for myself. It was 1995 when the guy who led me to the Lord gave me a copy of Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And it was hard to make my way through that book, but I considered the evidence compiled in this incredible book, and I soon came to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, in fact, the best attested fact of ancient history. And it's for this reason that I challenge you to look at the evidence for yourself. You see, I'm not afraid of the evidence. 
I know the unbeliever who will give a fair uh, examination of the evidence will be brought to the conclusion that I came to, that Jesus is risen. That's why I challenge you, if you haven't before, examine the evidence with an open and fair mind. At the same time, I'd also like you to know that those who trust in Jesus Christ are those who also have a heart that is filled with hope. I like the way that the Apostle Peter put it in 1 Peter chapter 1. There he declares, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Here in these verses, we find the apostle Peter, he's reminding his readers about the living hope that the believer has. Once we place our faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our hearts are filled with hope. Those who have placed their faith in the Lord can look beyond the hopelessness of this wicked world. And it's sad to say that, you know, that hopelessness would best describe the days in which we live. And yet the believer can look forward to the finish line of faith. And and as we look forward to the finish line of faith, our heart is filled with hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ because we know that it's there where we will receive an eternal inheritance. Now, chances are you're like me. You you don't have some some wealthy, you know, parent who's going to leave to you, you know, a, a huge inheritance here in this world. No one's leaving me some huge inheritance here. And I'm okay with that. Because chances are I would just spend it on stupid stuff anyway. But I have an eternal inheritance waiting for me in heaven. And it's an inheritance that a busted economy will not ruin, that the feds cannot claim or tax. That it's 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 mine and it's waiting for me in heaven. It's incorruptible and undefiled. It does not fade away. And the reason why is because Jesus is reserving this for me there in heaven. And in this, I hope. You can have the same hope by faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The born-again believer also has the hope of knowing that we will be with the one who loves us most forevermore. And of course, I'm talking about Jesus Christ. I like the way that Paul put it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's there where he declares, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Listen, those who trust in the resurrection of our Redeemer are filled with an everlasting hope. And it's, it's a hope in knowing that we will be with our Savior forevermore. We will be with the one who loves us with an infinite love forevermore. Knowing that we've all suffered broken hearts here in this world. Listen, there's coming a day when we will be in the presence of the one who loves us with a perfect love. And in this we hope. What this also means is that the sting of death no longer affects us. The resurrection of our Redeemer takes away the sting of death, which is not to say that death doesn't hurt. You know, I'm not worried about death. I am worried about dying. (laughs) I I don't like the idea of dying, but hey, once it's over, I mean, we're done here. I'm with my Savior, Jesus. And Paul here refers to those who sorrow with no hope in reference to death. Listen, as a pastor, I've been doing funerals for many, many years. And I know the difference between a believer's funeral and an unbeliever's funeral. And when I've officiated funerals for unbelievers, there is a hopelessness. There's just a hopelessness there. Because there's no faith in it. There's, there's, no, there's no belief in a resurrection. There's no belief in an afterlife. It's just hopeless. 
At a believer's funeral, is it sad? Of course. Are there tears? Well, of course. And yet there's still hope. Why? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because of his resurrection, those who trust in him will also raise up to everlasting life. I like the way that Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 15. There he declares, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, I realize we're living in a hopeless world. I'd love to stand up here and say, it's going to get better. If we can just get the right person in office, they'll fix it all, you know. If we can just get the right laws, if we can just get the, if we can just get a good job, you know, with a, with a, listen. <laughs> it's just going to get worse here the closer we get to the, to the rapture of the church. And if your hope is in the economy, if your hope is in politics, if your hope is in the business world, if your hope is in these things, it's hopeless. But if your faith is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you can have a heart that's filled with hope each and every day. And the reason why is because those who walk by faith with Jesus Christ are already more than conquerors through Christ Jesus who loves us. The victory that our Savior secured when he rose up from the dead has now been extended to those who trust in the reality of his resurrection. And as a result, every Christian living in the world today ought to have a heart that's filled with hope. And the reason why is because our Savior's victory over the grave helps us to see that we too will experience the reality of our Savior's resurrection. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word and for how you use it to challenge us and change us. And I pray, Lord, that we would leave here today with a heart that's filled with hope. Thank you, Lord, for the incredible hope that we have in you. Knowing that this world is dark and dying and going to hell in a handbasket. Lord, help us to have the hope that leads us to take the light that that is your truth into this dark world so that we can be a witness for you, so that we can lead unbelievers to you, so that they too might be saved. Help us to take the evidence of your resurrection and present it to those who are lost so that they might see that there are good reasons to believe in your resurrection. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you for accomplishing all the work necessary for our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.